0: Hi everyone, we've got an incredibly important discussion for you today. It's all about China. The rise of China and the authoritarian Chinese Communist Party under President Xi Jinping. It's about China's ambitions to be the world's leading superpower. What is Beijing doing? What does Beijing and the Chinese Communist Party want? And what does this mean for the world, for the West, for us here in Canada, both in the here and now, and what it means for you and your children's future? And there's really no better guest to cover this issue than Josh Rogan, He's a syndicated columnist for the Washington Post, a regular analyst on CNN, and someone who has had a front row seat when it comes to how the U.S. engages with China due to his great access to American officials and the White House. He has a must-read new book out available now called Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, G and the Battle for the 21st Century. Josh Rogan joins us now. Josh, great to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you let's get into it first of all the title of the book the subtitle the battle for the 21st century what is that
1: so the title of the book is chaos under heaven it's a quote attributed to Mao Zedong uh, who said something to the effect of there is great chaos under heaven the situation is excellent and what he meant by that was that as far as he was concerned the more that his enemies uh, and the CCP's enemies were caught in their own dysfunction and infighting and uh, confusion, the better that was for the Chinese Communist Party and its struggle. And, you know, regardless of whether he ever actually said that, uh, you saw a lot of that uh, carry forward into the first four years of the Trump administration's policy toward uh, China under General Secretary Xi Jinping. In other words, it was chaotic. And I think that won't come as a big surprise to a lot of listeners. And of course, the chaos inside the Trump administration was baked into its DNA. In other words, it affected everything. And China was just only one example of that. But the China issue was very unique because uh, it involved several different factions who fought against each other, a president who cared a lot about the issue, but knew very little about it and who changed his mind on tactics all the time. And basically, it was just a crazy story that started crazy and just got crazier and crazier as time went on. Now, the subtitles uh, Trump, Xi and the Battle for the 21st Century because in my view, this was sort of the first inning of what's going to be a, a new phase, a new game between not just the United States and China, but in China's relationship with the rest of the world. In other words, uh, in the in 2016, there was still a lot of uh, pent up uh, optimism that uh, China under Xi Jinping would um, move towards uh, a, a, a strategy that um, would lead it to liberalize economically and then in turn liberal, liberalize politically. And join our world order and play by our rules. Uh, But by 2020, it's really hard to make that argument. It's really hard for anyone in the world who saw how the PRC handled the coronavirus pandemic, just for an example, to say that it's not increasingly clear that China is going another way. And what the book does is sort of lay out an argument for why we should uh, acknowledge that and then respond to it. And how we respond to it will be one of the crucial and most difficult and complex challenges Uh, of our century and uh, i think that conversation is just beginning
0: before we get into the coronavirus what happened in wuhan over a year ago what does china want i know we can say that the world we live in right now is still to some degree a a u.s dominated world in terms of global institutions uh, you know united nations and world bank and so forth things that were put together uh, post-world war ii it looks like china is saying well hold on a second we have these other bodies these other institutions, this other way of doing things. And we'd like to kind of push the world in that direction. Is that happening right now, Josh?
1: Right. The way that I see it is essentially a, a systems battle. I see it as, um, you know, and, and this is based on my um, research into uh, what Xi Jinping has said and written. And, uh, you know, he lays it out pretty clearly. And a lot of this is in the book. In other words, uh, as far as Xi Jinping is concerned, and therefore as far as the Chinese leadership is concerned, Uh, The values and liberal sort of uh, institutions that we've built up over World War II are not things that China wishes to join, but rather things that China under this leadership sees as threats to its own uh, national interest and its own ambitions, and therefore the what Xi Jinping calls the China dream. In other words, he identifies uh, non-governmental organizations and civil society and even the free press, not to mention lots of multilateral organizations as things that the west has been using to keep china down and that under his rule we will see not china rising but a china risen now what that means for us is that you know the bet that uh china could be coaxed or convinced or prodded or uh um, coerced into becoming more like us into becoming a system that more resembles our form of governance and the way that we treat our citizens uh is lost and that you know perhaps it was hubristic to think that china was going to develop in a way that would Look like us in the first place, and China's development will be d- driven by the Chinese people. But the, that admitting that is only the first step to addressing the problem, because what we've seen under Xi Jinping is a steady increase in the CCP's internal repression and external aggression, and that affects us both in terms of our values and our interests. And that's the challenge that we're in. It's not really about a Cold War or a Thucydides trap or risingness and fallingness in the international system. In my view, it's about How does the international community, especially free and open societies, but not only free and open societies, respond to China as it rises?
0: Well, that's an interesting question, particularly here in Canada. I know your former president in the U.S., Donald Trump, was more than happy to have something of a at least confrontational nature in terms of some verbiage with China. Here in Canada, lots of criticisms that no matter what happens to us, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the government uh, basically will not criticize China, partially because we have this issue with uh, the two Michaels, as we call them, Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavor, being held in detention for quite a long time now, uh, basically hostage takings, as we call them should other countries be just more openly criticizing saying no Ji jingping we do not uh want a part in this vision
1: right well i think every country will have its own interests and its own relationship with china and uh that's all well and good in other words i don't expect korea, south korea and uh you know um, france to have the same exact perspective because they have different interests and different relationships with beijing and always will but you know there are some things that bind us, and you know if we profess to live in uh, societies that believe in human dignity and universal rights, and then that those are things that we can't stay silent on because the silence is the uh, what the CCP needs to continue its atrocities, including an ongoing genocide against Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, but not also but also uh, mass atrocities against Tibetans and Inner Mongolians, not to mention the crackdown in Hong Kong, pressure on Taiwan. So in my opinion, when free and open societies censor themselves, especially governments that profess to believe in human rights, like the Canadian government has, uh, for all, for, no matter which party was in power, uh, then they're at, that's actually a, a capitulation to the, the strategy that the CCP is putting forth, which is to shut us up. And, you know, it's a tragedy that they're holding the two mics as hostages. But, you know, and, and I've written about this before. I think that the, the self-censorship actually gives them a more of an incentive to hold the two mics rather than to release them because the longer they hold them, the longer they can keep Justin Trudeau from saying anything bad about them. So it's 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 morally incorrect and it's also strategically incorrect to shut up about the things that we believe in. And, you know, again, part of avoiding the Cold War and avoiding conflict is proving to the Chinese leadership that, you know, we can live together, but that doesn't mean that we're going to ignore mass atrocities or stand up for hostage taking or anything like that. So, you know, I think that's a complicated issue for a lot of countries. I'm not saying, uh, you know, anyone has it exactly right. I think the United States has to lead on these issues because it is currently the most powerful country and other countries will will follow our lead. I think that's what you saw happening with the genocide designation uh, uh, that the U.S. government put out. Now many others are following. Uh, But yes, these are competing interests. These are tough issues. I'm not unsympathetic to the the sensitivities surrounding the two mics and what the Trudeau government is going through. At the same time, I think that uh, the way they've handled it has been, um, you know, at times 100% wrong.
0: Josh, there's a growing course of voices, both domestically here in Canada and internationally, calling on the Trudeau government to ban Huawei from playing a role in in constructing our 5G infrastructure. A number of countries have already done this. Is this something that we should do?
1: You know, I, again, not to give you direct advice, but Here's here's what I would say. You know, uh, I think that the vulnerabilities inherent in building your in, in, uh, tech infrastructure with Chinese tech, especially companies that are so closely linked uh, to the Chinese government and the Chinese uh, military and intelligence services, are clear. There are very clear vulnerabilities, uh, and I think the mountain of evidence to that is 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 beyond dispute. Now, you know, are you if you're going to take those risks? Well, then you have to understand the risks that you're taking it you have to calculate is it worth it and what are you really getting you're getting a a a very good system that's a lot cheaper than market value and there's a reason for that the reason is because it's heavily subsidized because they want to apply Canada with you know easily compromisable telecom tech for a variety of interests that are in the Chinese national interest and not ours so you know you 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 know Canada has to make its own decision are you going to ignore those risks I think it I I I can speak for my country. I'm I'm. I don't think we should ignore the risks. Now, again, that's complicated because the as far as the Chinese government is concerned, it's all connected, and they're going to connect the Huawei ban to the two mics to the Halifax forum to the genocide designation to Hong Kong to whatever they want. Because for the on their side, and this is what's really important for a lot of people, especially Canadians, but a lot of other people to understand is that you know this is the CCP's. Uh, uh, priorities, the political stuff. It's not really the Huawei, but they'll use whatever they can to sort of put whatever pressure they can on governments to advance their interests. And I just think we have to be uh, clear eyed about that tactic. So, you know, you want want to put in the the Huawei stuff all over Canada? Well, that's your sovereign decision. But, you know, that will also have um, uh, downside consequences, because if you have like a U.S., company that's interacting with you or another from another another country, much less a defense interaction or intelligence interaction. Well, that's that's going to be less trusted so that you're going to have to expect other people to make those kinds of calculations. So, uh, you know, I just say proceed with with great
0: care. Josh, is it fair to say that there are other countries that have not been proceeding with great care in terms of uh, letting China get embedded into their economy, into their security infrastructure? I know China does a lot to very aggressively court uh, various African nations. I was surprised to learn the deep connections between China and Italy and how uh, iconic brands like Pirelli tires are in fact owned by Chinese state-owned enterprises, which is, you know, basically the Chinese government. I mean, what is going on in terms of their, their international sway right now?
1: No, I I mean, I think for the last 25 years, uh, China has done a very good job of combining uh, industrial policy and diplomatic policy and development policy in countries all over the world. Uh, The One Belt, One Road project is a $2 trillion infrastructure project, and that's linked to their political aims and their military expansion and all the rest. So I'm not saying that uh, it's not effective. It's actually very effective. And, you know, dozens of countries in Africa and Latin America have have bought onto this package and even though the, we we see many examples where these kinds of investments turn out bad, you know, for whatever reason, it, maybe it's a debt trap, maybe your 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 uh, your networks are compromised to Chinese spying or or, or whatever. Uh, but you know, it's very hard for these countries to refuse that much engagement and that much money and that much attention. And you know, my criticism has always been of the Western world for not alter- offering a, a a better alternative. And I think a lot of countries in the world would rather have tech that's less susceptible to spying and you know projects that are less debt trap and all of that but you know i think that uh you know the free and open societies haven't been aggressive enough in pre- pre- presenting them with an alternative and if you just look at uh, any of these examples if you look at brazil and you know they're they're on the verge of uh, of of banning huawei and you know here comes the prc with a bunch of vaccines mm. they're blackmailing them with vaccines they're saying would you like to live well you have to take the huawei that's what that is that's about as clear of a blackmail as you can they went to the Par- paraguay and that told the government there if you drop taiwan you can have your shots wow. think of that they're b- they're blackmailing people the, ta- the paraguayan go- paraguayan government with vaccines probably only worth 50 percent anyway but they're better than nothing so why you know why doesn't the u.s government or the international community go in and take the paraguayan government out of that bind so they don't have to choose between you know their people dying or their diplomatic recognition of taiwan which is no choice you know what i mean so we have to understand that the uh uh, that the ccp's uh expansion also includes a lot of foreign influence and that means seeding a lot of institutions with cash and through proxies and proxy organizations and networks and you know i we have to look at every sort of aspect of our collaboration not to get rid of it because collaboration is important and, you know, we need uh, engagement with Chinese people, but we need to understand that when that wep- engagement is being weaponized against us, and that includes in our schools and in our markets, in our Silicon Valley tech companies, in our sports even, and in our Hollywood films. And, you know, this is, a, again, a very complex problem that pits, you know, well-meaning people in uh could have different opinions about it but that's the discussion that we need to be engaged in and that sort of gets you to scientific collaboration because if you can't cooperate with the chinese government on you know stopping a pandemic what can you collaborate on it seems like the most obvious thing that's in our shared interest and yet uh when you get to when you just take one look at what happened in wuhan and at these labs and you know ever since and with the their pattern of uh cover-up and obfuscation and misinformation uh, you realize that this is really a problem that we can no longer ignore.
0: Josh, what really happened in Wuhan over a year ago? Some say just the wet market. Others, well, this was this you know natural virus. It somehow escaped. No, it was a bioweapon. No, it was this. No, it was that. Oh, if you say this, you're a conspiracy theorist. Oh, hold on. Wait, the State Department says this. Don't go in this direction. Let's go in that direction. It, it is such a mess, that conversation. It is so contentious. Uh, where right. does the truth lie, Josh?
1: Right. Well, I think, first of all, the first thing that your uh, listeners can do is to uh, pick up my book, Chaos Under Heaven, where I go into this in much more extensive detail than I'm going to be able to do in this podcast right now. But I'll give you the broad brush overview based on, again, I reported this twice. I reported it at the time and then again with another 400 or so interviews for the book. And, you know, it's very important to understand how we got here. And I think the easiest way to say it is that, you know, at this while the pandemic was raging, across our land in the spring and summer of 2020, uh, while we were all engrossed in that sort of dystopian nightmare and we didn't have good information and we didn't know what was going on and we didn't have enough masks and we, we didn't know what, ha, what it, ha, have enough ventilators. And, you know, it was just businesses were going down and family members were dying. This was the craziest time, I think, in my life that I can that I think I can say that pretty clearly. And I'm sure it applies for almost every other human. You know during that time the chinese government um did everything it could to uh, uh thwart the free flow of information it jailed journalists uh it, it disappeared scientists it, it disappeared doctors uh, it held back the actual scientific information it it lied about the scientific information as reported in my book president xi Directly lied to President Trump in two separate phone conversations where he told him that the virus would go away uh, in the warm weather, that they had it under control, that herbal medicine could treat it, several other lies. And so th- before we even talk about the origin of the coronavirus, which I'm about to get to, uh, we have to understand that forget about the origin for a second. Just from what we know of how the Chinese Communist Party handled those early months of the pandemic, uh, we know that their actions uh, a- exacerbated our suffering you know, and exacerbated and sowed confusion into our systems, including the WHO and the US government, and your government and every other government. And that cost many, many, many lives. Now, when so when people say, oh, well, if the lab accident theory is about blaming China. No, 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 no. You know, if you want to blame China and I'm not just about blaming China, although right. I think, you know, there is some liability there to be sure. But if you wanted to blame China, there's plenty of things you could blame China. You don't need the lab accident theory to bolster that case. China's Clearly guilty of several other sins related to this pandemic. The lab act. The origin question is about finding out how this happened so that it doesn't happen again. Because in any disaster, in any you know uh, plane crash, nuclear plant meltdown, the obvious thing to do is to find out what happened so that we can figure out how to make sure it doesn't happen again. And that's why we need to find out the origin story. And the, the huge problem was that for a lot of the of the first few months of the pandemic this story was hyper politicized for a number of crazy reasons Uh, one reason was because the trump administration politicized it one reason was because the scientists who spoke out initially against it had a clear conflict of interest and they were the best friends of the lab and they got on tv and said how dare you you know imagine that the lab might be involved because they were covering their own butts and they continued to do so so be skeptical of anyone who says don't look into this you know that's a like kind of like a journalistic axiom if someone says oh no no no," you may not ask this question you know that 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 line of investigation should not be pursued You'll that's look the, the right guy who you, gotta look, who you got to look look at askance you know and you know i i my position has always been that we have to look into both theories the natural spillover theory and the lab accident theory but i also argue in the book and i'm prepared to argue right now that i think the circumstantial evidence pointing to the lab accident theory is way more compelling and just there's just a lot more of it including that those labs were working on bat coronaviruses including doing experiments that made them more infectious towards humans and that that the that is i think right there enough to warrant a little bit more investigation well why would they uh, be doing that is is that a, is there a medical that was,
0: standard you, to doing that or is yes, that a fringe thing to a, do?
1: no that was a 200 million dollar program that they were doing in conjunction with u.s scientists partially funded by us aid partially funded by the nih and and guys like francis collins and anthony fauci and it, what they were doing it, it was a meant to predict and preempt the pandemic it was called the predict program but guess what it didn't predict the pandemic but it may have actually uh, accidentally, I think, sparked the pandemic. And, you know, basically what they did is they spent 15 years going to the places where the worst viruses are, all the caves and wherever, and finding the worst viruses and bringing them back to the labs and playing around with them. And that was meant to see how they might evolve in nature in order that we could anticipate a pandemic and develop therapeutics and vaccines and the such. Now, that yes, I, it's kind of ironic if that research ended up sparking the pandemic they were meant to pr- predict. But that's the theory. Now, the, the alternative theory is that because remember, the outbreak happened a thousand miles from where the bats are, right? right. It happened two miles from the lab and a thousand miles from where the bats are. If, it had, if the outbreak had you know, begun where the bats are, where, like the first SARS outbreak, you might be more convinced that like, it probably evolved from the bats. But anyway, the other theory is that a bat bit of pangolin that walked a thousand miles And then spilled over right next to the lab. That's the other thing. Okay, and I don't know which one is right. You don't know which one is right. But again, if you hadn't, if this issue hadn't been politicized, again, first by the Trump administration and then by the scientists who are the best friends of the lab in either direction, uh, you would think we probably have to take a look at that lab. And that's what I think. That's where I think we are now. I think that more and more, a lot of scientists, especially 18 top virologists, yesterday finally, you know, came down from their ivory towers and told us we should look into the lab. Uh, you know, Dr. Tedros, the head of the WHO, uh, criticized his own report. The WHO report said we shouldn't look into the lab. By the way, it was written by the best friends of the lab and then and the Chinese government. And then Dr. Tedros said, no, we have to look into the lab. Robert Redfield, who was the head of the CDC, not a completely unproblematic human being in American politics, but nevertheless, not a Trump guy. You know, he said, I think I took one look at this. virus. He's a virologist. He said, I took a look at the virus. I think it came from the lab. And he pointed to the gain-of-function research. And so to me, that seems like enough right there that we should probably take a look at the lab. But yeah, for the reasons we just discussed, nobody hasn't done that. Josh, you talked about what happened to
0: Brazil when China basically said, okay, if you want the vaccines, here's what you got to do. At what point did Xi Jinping and and others in, in the Chinese Communist Party decide, okay, we want to use this to our advantage. Now there are people out there who will say, well, since before day one, they've always sort of had their designs on this. Others, you know, it took a certain amount of time. I, I'm sure you recall the EU Competition Commissioner back about a year ago uh, actually called on governments to uh, to buy stocks in their own major publicly listed companies to fend off hostile takeovers from China. Fears from the EU that that was going to happen. I mean, a lot of fears that there'd be crazy plays. And I guess to your point about the Brazil example, there have been some crazy plays. What 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 is the actual a strategic thinking behind this,
1: right? Well, on the one hand, I think it's kind of naive to think that we would have the biggest disaster in human history and there wouldn't be geopolitical geostrategic implications. And I think, you know, when I talk to especially U.S. officials, especially Biden administration officials, I'm always shocked by the fact that they don't seem to be attuned to that or to care about that much. In other words, like when I say to the U.S. State Department people, hey, uh, you know, Chinese vaccine diplomacy in Latin America is changing the balance of influence there. They say well we don't play games with vaccines we're not we don't do that we just want to give it through covax and make sure huh. you know whatever and i say okay well that you should know that this is at least going on and, and i think that's uh that's just the latest example uh uh example of how the chinese government has been way ahead thinking about the the next stages of this crisis so in other words the sickness is just the first stage you know there's going to be broad economic devastation there's going to be you know uh Uh, reconstruction phase there's going to be a supply chain reorientation phase there's going to be manufacturing onshoring and and you know here in the u.s i don't know about in canada because i know you guys have different politics but here in the u.s it's like can we put our mask on on the plane why can't we put on mask on why can't i take my mask off on the plane right Right. which is not really the most important public policy matter out there all right and you know the chinese government has been thinking again to their credit about all of these different stages way in advance. And then because they're mixing the industry and the public health and the politics, in other words, when they force Brazil to take Huawei, that's an industrial policy play. But when they force Portugal to, I'm sorry, Paraguay to dump Taiwan, that's a political play, right? That has nothing to do with the economy or something to do with the economy. But in other words, they're 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 mixing all of these things all the time. And we're just, we're all flat footed because we're worried about whether or not like the Halifax Forum can give an award to Xi when that's the most important you know what i mean that's we're focused on all the wrong stuff
0: biden officials not being attuned to things uh, under the current biden administration i mean are things going to improve or worsen in terms of how uh, the international community should be engaging with china and, and responding sort of in the la- in the ways that you laid out there are are we going to make progress
1: you know i think definitely the multilateral piece is much much better one of the huge failings of the trump administration uh, as detailed in my book, uh, was that it, it, they were they attacked allies and adversaries at the same time. Donald Trump didn't believe in multilateral organizations uh, and uh, he treated allies terribly uh, and uh, including Canada, by the way. <laughs> and, you know, that was just like, you know, so stupid. So at least they're not doing that. So that's good. Uh, you but know, are they so
0: naive that's... to the to the extent of the threat? Well, here's what I would. Yeah,
1: I, I, I think the problem is that they're still thinking about the The challenge in 2016 terms and they don't Mm. they didn't they didn't read back they didn't a lot of them committed the sin of not reading my book yet (laughs) and if they had they would realize that like the game the game is moving and has moved beyond where it was and that the things that are on the bleeding edge of it which are like you know what is china's infiltration into our capital markets you know chinese uh companies are raising money through a variety of crazy mechanisms in our capital markets that uh, that is basically funding uh you know their aggression against us not to mention making us complicit in their mass atrocities that's a that's a thing the biden people can't wrap their head around because they didn't they weren't there for the last three years when we were all talking about this and you know uh same thing with like huawei or confucius institutes or you name it they just they don't know what they think about it and you know time marches apace and they so they're they're i think they're they're, they're good at the easy stuff, right? But the low hanging fruit is like, oh, we're going to go to the G7 and it's not going to be a disaster for once. Josh, you know, let
0: like, me ask you about like the nobody's Huawei. Nobody's going to
1: throw Starburst at the other lead. You know what I mean? But that's a pretty low bar when it comes down to it. Uh, yeah. L- let me ask
0: you was the Trump administration right to ask Canada to detain Huawei CFO Meng Wang And was Canada right to oblige that request and do it, getting us in this situation we are in right now with the two Michaels?
1: Yeah. I mean, my view on that is that the way that yes, there were, it was the I'm not, I'm a regardless of whether or not it was the a uh, 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 a justifiable arrest right on the facts right right so you 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 could look at the pieces of paper and say did they commit these crimes is the indictment valid at, at a rule of law matter right and and I I'm not a lawyer but it seems to me that as, a, as if you just read the indictment that it was a lawful procedure in other words they didn't corrupt that particular DOJ procedure. But that's that's really kind of missing the forest for the trees because, as we know, it's a really important geopolitical issue, and I think they handled it terribly because, the, if you remember, and this is in the book, they arrested her on the night that Trump was meeting with Xi Jinping in what Buenos Aires or Osaka? Right. I can't remember one of the two, and they didn't tell Trump, and John Bolton got the call from the Justice Department. They're like, "This is going down tonight." And John Bolton admits this in his book. And he says, oh, I didn't want to bother Trump. I did not want to bother Trump. So he doesn't tell Trump they arrest her. Then Trump has this whole dinner with Xi Jinping where they're like trying to work out a trade deal. And then they tell him afterwards. And he's like, what? What are you talking about? You just arrested. And like, because the person who told him was trying to screw with him, they, they convinced her that that they convinced him that she was like the Ivanka Trump of China, which is not which is also a ridiculous thing to say. But Trump kept repeating it. So he kept going around. Why? We arrested the Ivanka Trump of China. What what did we do? Bolton, you crazy idiot. What did you get us into? Okay, And so that undermined Trump's faith in the process. And therefore, that's why he didn't want to go to bat for Canada. When Canada, when the Canadian government came back, it's like, okay, well, we just did this thing and put ourselves in the soup. Do you have our backs or not? And the Trump and President Trump didn't care about it because he was, you know what I mean? Because he felt. Uh, that that he had been like misled, and that's the chaos. That's what I'm saying is that re- regardless of the merits of of arresting Meng, that was a big thing to do to to ask Canada to, to ask our friend to do, and they messed it up because they were a dysfunctional mess internally. So you know, here we are. They put Can- we put Canada in this tough tough spot, and then sort of hung them out to dry. And you know, now and then at the end they tried to they make it tried to make a deal. It didn't work out. Whatever. And I just think that that's like a good example of a a, a really important issue that they sort of brought to the fore rightly, but mishandled because of their own,
0: you know, incompetence. Josh, there are a lot of revelations in your book, uh, particularly pertaining to the White House, to the Trump administration. What were the things that really surprised you the most about what happened behind the scenes between the administration and China?
1: You know, what surprised me the most was the 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 massive influence of people who were not in the government okay these are trump's billionaire friends uh almost all of them i think all of them basically uh were doing the bidding of the chinese communist party as unofficial go-betweens between the top 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 chinese leadership and it was run often through jared kushner but also uh you know we're talking about adelson and uh stephen schwartzman and larry fink and mnuchin and you know big all of wall these Street guys, guys
0: big vegas so, guys
1: all the wall john thornton the 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 billionaires the type of you know the casino guys trump's guys you know and then think about like uh what was the elliot brody another billionaire who was doing who pleaded guilty to right illegal lobbying on behalf of the ccp and it, that's just this coterie of billionaires constantly injecting themselves into the U.S.-China relationship in what I consider to be the most unhelpful ways. And Trump bought into it because that's how he thought of himself as like an oligarch and that he thought this was like cool. And of course, the Chinese government loved it because they that's how they think, you know, that's how they think. They think everyone we're all just monarchies pretending to be uh, democracies and we're all just corrupt families. You know, taking power from each other. You know, because that's how it operates inside their system. But
0: the way you and- lay it out, then, I mean, we, you've got the billionaires who are, are who are maybe a little too close to China. Uh, when you mention the Confucius Institutes, you're talking about how different universities all across the world, we have it here in Canada, are receiving funding from the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, you've got state-owned enterprises buying things up. We have those challenges, those debates here in Canada. We've got the new institutions like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. We're having a debate about that here in Canada, whether we should abandon it or not. I mean, what what. What is not, what roads do not lead back to China right now?
1: Well, that's the point is that, you know, uh, because uh, all of our institutions are facing the same uh, challenge, it seems that we should all get our heads together on this thing. And I think the, the commonality that we all have and not not all countries, but all free and open societies is that, you know, we don't want a, a war with China. We, we don't want a conflict. We don't want to decouple. We don't want to live in two separate worlds where we can't deal with each other. Uh, and the so we have to find a way to live with China and for China to live with the rest of the world without them using our engagement and in our institutions against us. Without, the, In other words, if we can't shape China, fine, but we can't let them shape us. Uh, otherwise, we'll lose the things that we hold dear, which are human rights and the rule of law and the freedom to say what you want and to love who you want and to criticize who you want and to worship who you want and the basic dignity that all humans are entitled to. And If we stand for those things, then I think those are the things that unite us, but we also have to live up to them. And, you know, so the best way to compete with China is to uh, be the best version of ourselves and to fix our systems and to prove that our model where people are empowered instead of the party, where people get to the focus of liberty, not and don't have to be chattel of the party state, that that system is actually better. But it's only better if we can prove that it still works.
0: Josh Rogan, before we go, you know, I hear from a lot of people after they get out of government, a four-year parliamentary term in Canada, just how quickly those four years can go by. One term can. I'm sure it's the same, whether it's Trump administration, Biden administration, or what have you. W- what are the specific action items? What, what What's the top two, three, whatever it is, things that you go, this is the stuff that you got to tackle and that the people have got to request the policymakers tackle right off the gate?
1: You know, I'm just going to put genocide at the top of that list. Uh, You know, I think once we have a world where, you know, millions of people can be uh, herded into concentration camps and, you know, tens of millions of people can see their identity, culture, language, history and uh, and uh, future generations just taken away from them uh, with no consequence uh i think that's a a world that looks a little darker for all of us and i think that that is the model that i fear the most uh it's not just the concentration camps it's the the surveillance and the ai and the you know the living in the open-air prison that is xinjiang before you get to the camps and the forced labor that happens after you get out of the camps you know imagine that model exported to three dozen african countries uh who might wish to purchase it imagine concentration camps and forced labor You know, just becoming more prevalent than, you know, people who are able to choose what they want to do for a living and choose where they want to live, where they want to live and who they want to marry. And that's to me is the most scary. So I think that's something that uh, uh, it doesn't matter what party you're in. It doesn't matter what country you're in. uh, We have to stand against that, first of all. And that means talking more about it, even though it's a difficult and uncomfortable thing to talk about. And then, you know, I would just put number two as, uh, um, you know, we have to. Uh, understand and build, build transparency into our system so that we know what we're dealing with when it comes to Chinese Communist Party influence in our societies in other words we don't want to target any one country we just want to know what's going on inside of our system so that means forcing all of our institutions to be more transparent and be more honest and 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 if if they want to take you know money from this or that source that's fine but we need to know about it so until we sort of have an understanding that foreign influence, especially by an uh, adversary government that wishes us harm is something that we need to increase our attention and uh, to, then uh, the problems will only get worse than not better. And then the third thing is, I think we have to preserve our our this is a positive note. We should preserve our engagement with the Chinese people who are not the same thing as the Chinese Communist Party. And, right. uh, you know, uh, that engagement provides the crucial, crucial uh, lifeline between our two societies that could really come in handy uh, when, if the chips are down.
0: Powerful words, and there's so much more terrain to cover, and luckily you've covered it in the book, Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, G, and the Battle for the 21st Century. Josh Rogan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru, with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review, and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.